Welcome to the Future Charlotte Podcast. I'm your host, Eli Portillo. I've spent more than a decade studying Charlotte, first as a journalist and now as assistant director of the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. 20 years ago, this city looked radically different. No light rail, a smaller skyline, and breweries, what breweries? What will we look like in the next 20 years? That's what we're exploring on this show. Our guest today is David Walters, a man who knows a lot about design and a lot about Charlotte and has written pretty extensively about both of those topics. David is a longtime planner, teacher, architect, and professor emeritus of architecture and urban design at UNC Charlotte. David, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for asking me, Eli. It's uh, always a pleasure to talk about our wonderful hometown. So, first off, just to start, tell me a little about yourself, your work, what you've done, and how it intersects with Charlotte's growth and development. Well, I call Charlotte my home, but obviously it isn't. I've only got to open my mouth and people know I'm not from here. I'm from England, pretty obviously. I trained as an architect over in the UK and I practiced there and in other parts of Europe. And then in the 80s, I was offered a job in, of all places, Mississippi. And I worked at Mississippi State and then became a fairly typical sort of journeyman academic moving to wherever the jobs were. Uh, it's, it's a very common story. And I was lucky enough to end up in Charlotte. I knew nothing about Charlotte, um, and you know, other than it was named after a queen. And I've enjoyed finding out about it. I've been lucky enough, my, my wife Linda and I have been lucky enough to live uh, since the early 90s in Dilworth, which is a model Ironically, it's a model of how Charlotte should be in the future. And we'll probably get back to that because it's it's walkable. It's got every use you can need. I, you know, I'm going to walk to the doctor later. Uh, if we had kids, we could walk them to school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As we age, it's also fairly flat, which, which is a big help. So I gravitated towards urbanism by accident because uh, in the UK, I did housing, not houses, but housing. And if you do enough big housing, you end up being an urban designer by default, because you can only do so much with affordable housing plans as units. You've only got a small square footage, and you do the best you can and make, it, make sure it works and it's safe and it's lovely. But the real deal is the spaces between the buildings, you know, that they're, they're attractive and safe and uh, there's places for kids to play, and you've got private outdoor space, all, all the things that extend our private world of the home into the public world of the city. Let's talk about that a little more, because I think that kind of leads into where, where I wanted to go with this conversation, which is Charlotte is this newer post-war city, largely auto-dependent. We have some of our Dilworths, we have some of our older uh, neighborhoods, you know, the Elizabeths, Plaza Midwoods, but uh, a lot of suburbs, a lot of single family housing, you know, one third of an acre lot, one house detached, not very walkable for anything besides maybe if you're lucky walking to the park. What do you think we need to do in Charlotte to get back to more of that walkable urban fabric that you were talking about where you live? That is the hardest question you could possibly ask any urban designer and, and, and planner. Well, I started with the easy one. Tell me about yourself, so then jump straight <laughs> well, into the hard one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't blame you because that's actually the real issue. 
Because as you say, quite rightly, Charlotte is an auto-dependent Second World War, post-Second World War urban area. It was built around the car. The bits that people now value and which continue to maintain a high economic profile for the older streetcar suburbs, and we've mentioned some of them, um, that model the way America used to build from coast to coast. It built places like Salisbury, like, uh, you know, Dilworth, Myers Park, Wilmore, et cetera, et cetera. Because the way that the, that the economic system was set up relied a lot on smaller building companies, smaller developers. So things happened in smaller increments. I mean, when you think, you know, Dilworth is a big planned development. I mean, when you look at it, it's like a mega subdivision, but it was built over many, many, many years with many, many, many different designers. And the design changed halfway through from a grid to a swirly pattern. And so the passage of time plus uh, a more locally based construction industry using local materials, et cetera, et cetera, building on local traditions, local craftsmen, imbued sort of automatically a sense of place because where we lived seemed relatively organically to grow from the culture of the place. I mean, Charlotte makes a lot of bricks. We've got a lot of trees. I mean, we're not unique in that, but it has shaped how we built. Of course, since the Second World War, we've, you know, that's totally changed. Builders are huge volume builders. They build thousands, if not tens of thousands of units. I'm thinking of Levitt, places like Levitt Town up in the Northeast, but that's only an extreme example. Individually, those houses are fine. I mean, and my wife grew up in the, I won't say which decade, because you work out how old she is, but you know, post-war in typical American suburbia. And it was just fine. But then the family moved when she was a teenager closer in, you know, she grew up in Urbana-Champaign in Illinois, and they moved to a house in a, a sort of Dilworth-type neighborhood, because that's how, historically, Urbana, that's a small town, was built. So her dad could walk to the university, my wife could walk or ride her bike or roller skate to school all the way up through high school and into college. She did her undergraduate work in, in Urbana. And that comfortable sense, I mean, that's, that's, that's part of the American mythology when we talk about home and neighborhood. It's exactly the kind of life my wife was privileged to live. And of course, she took it for granted, like we all do. But that convenience of accessibility, that sense of shared neighborhood, you know, walkability, there was a park across the street, et cetera, et cetera. That changed completely because none of those things, that smaller incremental growth, made any sense in the new economic model, which depended on big projects and big singular projects. If you were a, if you were a house builder, you had no interest in building an office park. So you know, the construction and development industry fragmented into people who did office parks, people who did shopping centers, people who did single family subdivisions, people who did apartments. And so it's a common story. Everything was separated out. We were all in love with the 
with the car. Gas was pennies, really. And of course, the cars of the post-war period were these amazingly wonderful, glittery machines everybody fell in love with. And so everybody drove everywhere for everything. And that was complete. I mean, it's a complete paradigm shift. The fact that we've lived in the second part of that paradigm in the autocentric universe for all our lives, for many of us, means that it seems normal. And, you know, the older pattern seems sort of quaint, except as you get older and you're looking for a good investment, the older pattern makes a whole lot of sense. And so, so much of planning and urban design work today is trying to both steer us back towards the more traditional model. We're not going to get rid of volume home builders. We're not going to ban single family homes. We're not going to do anything silly like that. But we're looking for ways to create more economic differences of opportunity. So there are opportunities for small builders. We, we see that again in the older neighborhoods. I mean, you write about, you know, there's a new development in Noda, for example. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but that someone's building, wants to build 10 townhomes on a lot and people are freaking out. <laughs> and, you know, because we've forgotten, totally forgotten that that's how America used to work. And somehow, some way, we've got to steer ourselves back to that. We've got the examples in our older neighborhoods. They're proven because they're really upmarket now. The market has spoken. Traditional neighborhoods work. That We value them. And that, of course, creates a whole other problem of affordability. I mean, I couldn't live where I live now if I tried to buy it. I just simply couldn't afford it. And I'm a sort of middle rank economically. I mean, I'm educated, white, you know, got a sort of reasonable retirement. But I could no more buy in Dilworth today than fly to the moon. And so, you know, if I can't afford it, there's, there, there are hundreds of thousands of folks like me and who earn less than I do, who have no chance of living in the kind of neighborhood that will support a multi-generational lifestyle. And that's a huge problem. I'm a former uh, Dilworth resident myself. My wife and I actually moved last year um, for basically the same reason. Two kids now and renting was no longer an option and we couldn't buy in Dilworth where we where we loved walking to um, the corner market and, and that sort of thing. So now we are uh, a bit farther out. Love where we live too, but you know, that was a an economic reality we ran into. I think your example of your wife moving to a more uh, traditional urban neighborhood in Urbana was really telling because that kind of gets to a question that I think some people have trouble with, which is what makes a good urban environment? What really separates it and defines it? In a neighborhood, like hypothetically, like a Dilworth, People will walk around, look around, drive around, and say, "Oh yeah, this is a this is a nice neighborhood. This is a good urban environment. I like this." But if you made them, you know, write it down, or really define, okay, why? What makes this good? What makes this something you enjoy and you like and a place you want to be? I think a lot of people struggle with that. Well, how would you define that? What do you think really um, makes something like a Dilworth a place people just want to be? 
Well, there's a there's a simple mantra that urban designers use when they're you know, when we're designing stuff. Uh, yes, sometimes we you know sort of put it on the wall, make sure we don't forget. So three simple words: put people first. Because ever since the Second World War, we've put cars first. It's been that simple. The the basic issue comes down to an equation of convenience versus character. It's really hard to have both if you the only way of moving around is by private automobile, because our cars demand so much space on a daily basis that it's, it's really hard to get the kind of environment that we are talking about where it's attractive and safe to walk. So if we put people first, it means if you're walking or if you ride on a bicycle, one, you feel safe. Two, you've got somewhere useful, attractive, important to go to, like a school or a neighborhood store, uh, and that you've got alternative ways of moving around. So you're not stuck in, oh, I gotta, you know, the you know, first left, second right, you know, forever. You can you can you can change it up. And you know, it's since you know the, the huge tragedy of, of COVID, people have been really studying how people's mood can be kept reasonably high. Guess what? Parks and variations in scenery are hugely important, particularly in a Zoom condition. Um, and so being able to, whether you articulate this or not, being in a place where it's safe and attractive to walk, number one. Two, there are interesting places to walk to for entertainment or for other parts of your life, church, school, etc so that you can build your life around pleasant and safe activities. Because let's face it, well, hopefully we don't get into many car accidents, but almost everybody has been in one at least, and it's no fun. So if, you know, if we can reduce the amount of time we drive, which is generally non-productive time, that not only do we keep ourselves safer, but we can be doing other stuff. We can be, you know, sketching or taking photographs. Is we you know, things that we can't do if if we're driving. Let's say shouldn't do because a lot of people do take <laughs> photographs and oh, yeah, that oh, sort yeah, of thing while they're driving. And, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let's not go there. Uh, but you're <laughs> absolutely right. I mean, our behavior is a species. Uh, you know, if we had the archetypal visitor from Mars looking, you know, just landing and seeing what's going on, they'd be horrified because we do as a species so many silly things. But, you know, we've, okay, we say we're in a safe neighborhood. It's attractive. There's trees, there's shade, there's interesting architecture. You know, the houses or the apartment buildings or the offices, they're not all the same. You know, they were built at different times by different people. Uh, there are, there's green space to go and relax. Uh, yeah, that's a, we know that's a problem in Charlotte. We're deficient in park space. Uh, you know, because, I mean, when you think, let's go back to the Myers Park in the 
in the Dilworth examples, for example, or, or Elizabeth, they've all got major parks, either within them or very close, Freedom Park, Latter Park, Independence Park. They're all very attractive places for formal and informal. You pick up basketball, just walk and look at the trees, uh, you know, listen to the birds, all that calming stuff that we've got options. An attractive, efficient place has options. It's safe, it's got options, and it helps if it has history because that just accumulates a patina of interest. But if you're building new, obviously it doesn't. So you've got to try and create a sense of intimacy with the architecture and the way buildings come together. Uh, you've got you've got to keep the car under control. My wife and I drive a little Toyota pickup, and you know we love that pickup. We'd be devastated if we didn't have it. But we don't have to use it every day, and so you know it's it's ten years old. It's got you know we do less than five thousand miles a year, which is unusual. But that's because we can, because you know we're lucky enough to be able to walk to a lot, or if we drive, it's very close by. So, not many people have the opportunity to design their lifestyle. People like you and I, because this is we're involved in the in the business of development and you know understanding it, we, we're actually incredibly lucky and privileged. But you know, my biggest worry, I mean, no offense to you, you're educated and you're white. I and a man. I'm an educated white man. I have enormous benefits that history has has, you know. I haven't earned them particularly, well, I earned my degrees and I work hard, but you know, I just sort of stepped into white privilege. And it took me two thirds of my life to recognize that. And how we can make the things that you and I value in a neighborhood, safety, attractiveness, convenience by foot, bike and transit without having to rely on a car, opportunities to work near where we live, to play near where we live, all that good stuff. How we can make that more accessible to every, ideally everybody, because this is not something that should be reserved for the upper middle class. And the tragedy of America is that at the moment it is. Yeah, I do think that's a danger in the contemporary conversation is we can talk a lot about this and say we ideally created this and we had 25 more neighborhoods like Dilworth throughout Charlotte, but only a small segment of the population, generally a wider segment of the population could afford to live there. Um, I think there's a danger in, you know, doing that and declaring success and just kind of forgetting about the other, um, you know, metaphorical other half. You said it earlier, a lot of these things can be more expensive. Yeah. Uh, you know, building a bunch of identical houses on a green field is comparatively cheap, and yeah. at least in the at least in the short run. Now, as someone who's been in this field for a long time, how have you seen the conversation shift around issues of design and uh, equity? Well, it's it's much easier to shift the conversation around design. That's really a question of having 
history and good examples on your side and being articulate in talking to people about it. 20 years ago, I used to be the after-dinner entertainment at developers' meetings when, you know, they'd be, they'd have their chicken and they'd be on dessert and, you know, they'd have, they'd have me to speak. And I was entertainment because I had a funny English accent and I talked about things like walkable neighborhoods and transit. This is in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, everybody was very polite, but you could see that I was entertaining them as this slightly weird kind of guy talking about this slightly weird kind of stuff. And that shifted about 10 years later. I remember being in a meeting with Peter Pappas and Todd Mansfield and me set up to talk about the kind of things we're talking, you know, the, the future of Charlotte, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, uh, I happened to, you know, we draw, drew lots, who spoke first, second, and third. I ended up speaking third. So I was all prepared to say the stuff I always say, you know, because it's, it's the truth and <laughs> we need to be doing this. And I have a certain sense of mission about it. But Peter Papa spoke first. And for those who don't uh, recognize the name, Peter is one of Charlotte's big time and actually you know, much better than average developers. He's done some really good stuff. Ditto Todd Mansfield. I mean, so they're... Yeah, just name a few of those developments. Can you, yeah, can you just name a few of those developments for folks who aren't uh, familiar with the names? Well, Phillips Place uh, was the very first one. Burkdale Village, you know, those are... The, those are perhaps the two most influential sort of more urban-ish mixed-use developments. And they were absolutely radical at the time. And Pappas and Mansfield really were taking chances. They were, they were setting a new course. And, you know, uh, they went out on a limb. I mean, it's, it's easy to speak bad about developers. Sometimes they deserve it. But... We, we mustn't forget that developers are actually the people who are often taking the risk financially. And of course, everybody who complains about developers probably lives in a house built by developers and they probably work in an office building or somewhere built by developers. So we, we really need to have a, a more holistic view of developers and developers. Sure, like, I mean, there are lousy architects. There are brilliant architects and lousy architects. There are great journalists and hacks. So there are very good developers and developers who shouldn't be working. And so I was there, you know, Peter Pappas began by talking about walkable urbanism, walking, having mixed uses and walking around and having transit. And I thought, uh-oh, something's happening. Todd Mansfield talked about walkable urbanism, you know, having transit, mixing uses, yada, yada, yada. Because, you know, they were exploring that in their own work at the time. And so between them, the two developers said everything I was going to say. And that was an absolutely unique moment for me because I'd always been in opposition, trying to correct course. So I had the enjoyable opportunity to say, hey, these guys are absolutely right. And you know, <laughs> I remember I got blowback. I said, oh, you're in bed with developers now. So, you know, I mean, that's normal as well. This was fortunately before the influx of social media. So, you know, I got off lightly, but it was a watershed moment for me that it, it, it showed me unambiguously 
that the leading edge of the development industry got it. And they also, not in that particular meeting, but it's clear that many developers, I'm thinking of locally someone like Clay Grubb, who I think does excellent work in his company, trying to deal with this issue of affordability. I mean, I remember working on, you know, many projects, you know, throughout the South, affordable housing is always an issue everywhere. And as part of the public participation process, you know, you get affordable housing developers in the mix and you talk to them and you work with them. And it was really quite upsetting when in conversation, they would show that, that lots of the nice things like, you know, having townhomes on alleys. So the garage, the double garage door doesn't dominate the sidewalk. I mean, there's nothing worse than walking past a row of townhomes, which is double garage doors as far as the eye can see and great concrete aprons. There's no front yard, you know, totally car dominated. And, you know, so I would say, well, look, you know, if we build in that, they said, don't even think about, but there's no way we can afford to build alleys and keep this stuff affordable. Now, that's just an example. I mean, you, you can find other. And so that's a huge challenge because we don't want affordability to equate with bad design. And all too often, professionals in the development and the design industry are forced into that equation because the things that make a place safe and attractive, I mean, you can't walk down the street or, you know, with your kids if folks are backing their SUVs out of front-loaded garages right over your kid's tricycle. You know, that's not safe. That's not attractive. And so it comes down, I'm going to use jargon. I mean, this is familiar to you, obviously, but the phrase public realm is something that urbanists use all the time. It's a bit jargonistic. What it means, it's the space between buildings that we all use and that we all share. That's why it's public. Realm is just a fancy word for you know, shared space. And if the public realm, if the spaces we share aren't safe, we're not going to use them. If we're not going to use them, we're not going to love them. We're not going to take care of them. We're not going to identify with them. We're not going to call them home. I mean, the thing is, people who are lucky to live in areas like I live, we can call Dilworth home. You know, that crops up in conversations with folks who live here. If you live in a suburban area where you've, you, know, you, you drive till you qualify kind of thing, you're forced to buy something that you don't really like, but you've got to get on the housing ladder. I've been in that. Almost everybody's been in that situation. And you can't wait to get out of it and move up to somewhere better. Some people never get that opportunity of economic advancement, which is a tragedy in itself. And so they tend to be stuck in places that are unloved and unlovely. And until we can find a way of allowing smaller developers to do smaller developments and you know, it may mean, uh, you know, city councils subsidizing land costs. Something's got to give. Clay Grubb is, you know, taking away the, co the car cost of car ownership. There's a similar project um, in the approval process in, in Dilworth 
for you know some apartments, reasonable density, not doesn't trouble me, but you know density numbers tend to freak people out, and uh, there's no parking. Now where Clay Grubb has is planning some you know legal strictures about that. This project in Dilworth is relying on the marketplace that there's enough people young generally young millennials or retired people who the, the hassle of owning a car is just one hassle they don't want and they can walk to the train they can walk to the bus they can walk to the bar they can walk to the doctor's office all that stuff and so there's a market segment that will buy into this the huge test for Charlotte is, is that market segment big enough? Because, you know, the residents of the single family housing around the, with this project site in, in Dilworth are very worried about parking. And this, of course, raises a whole other cultural issue. Folks are worried about people parking in, on their street who don't live on their street or, or they live on their street, but they don't have off street parking. Uh, it so happens there's a million dollar bungalow on, on my block, which doesn't have any off-street parking. Nobody cares about that because that's a wealthy white household, right? And so race and income play into this all the time. But streets are public. If I drive to visit a friend, not that we do anymore, but you know, just imagine we'll be able to at some point, I park in front of somebody else's house. That's normal. But we tend to, we've ingested suburban cul-de-sac values that if a strange car comes in, into your cul-de-sac, that means trouble. I, I remember, you know, because we live very near the, the Greek Orthodox Cathedral, when the Yazoo Festival is on, uh, you know, our neighborhood is flooded with cars. You know, folks are annoyed, local folks are annoyed, but I rather enjoy it because it's full of life and activity. But I was out in our front yard one year, just pottering around. And a space opened up right in front of our, of our home and immediately it was filled by this huge SUV. And you know, the guy you know, rolled down the window and said, uh, excuse me, uh, do you mind if I park here? And I said, no, I don't mind, it's a public street. Oh, he was, he was evidently very puzzled by my answer. And the, the notion of a public street that anybody could park there. We've, in, we've ingested you know, decades of suburban living where territory becomes something to be defended against incomers. When you live in a traditional, quote unquote, traditional neighborhood where the streets are connected, you know, folks I don't know drive down our street all the time. And of course, we're not immune from crime. You know, we, we lock our doors, we put security lights on, we live in a complex world. But the fact that our street is well used is in many ways its safest aspect. Because someone's always looking out. I know you're familiar with the great American urbanist Jane Jacobs, uh, who coined so many useful ideas, far too many to talk about here but eyes on the street. That's another thing that makes a great place, that the space we share, this public realm thing, 
where we walk to the store and we hang out or we sit down on a park bench or whatever. We're in public space. We feel safe because there are other people there doing casual observation. Not that they're actually on crime patrol, but they're just walking their dog or they're walking to school. So there's a level of casual observation and there's people in their homes or on their porches just, you know, sipping a gin and tonic and, you know, say, oh, there's Fred, you know, wave to Fred. Uh, so there's this level of casual observation that if you, if you have an architecture which puts double garage blank doors facing the street for block after block after block, that's inherently unsafe, not just because big cars can reverse out and kill people, but there's no casual observation. There's no eyes on the street. So when you put all those things together, we know very clearly how to design wonderful, attractive, safe, sustainable, because we don't drive as much, sustainable neighborhoods. The million dollar question is how can we make that level of design and that sustainable lifestyle accessible to everybody, regardless of income? In a capitalist society, that's nearly impossible. Without, I'm not a socialist, I'm a sort of centrist Democrat. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in no way advocating socialism. I'm often accused of that because I'm talking about public as opposed to private. But without public subsidy of some sort, whether it's land ownership, where the public sector absorbs the cost of land, which allows then affordable home developers to do really nice work. They want to do that. They're just prevented by the sheer irreversible laws of economics. So we've got, you know, Clay Grubb takes cars out of the equation and that tends to make things more affordable. If you take land cost out of the equation, you can be off and, and running. But that means an assertive public policy which recognizes that every American deserves the opportunity to live in a wonderful, safe place. Now, I'm a new American, but I believe that. I believe that with my every fiber of my being, that every one of us deserves the opportunity to live a safe, in a safe, attractive, lovely place. They may choose not to. That's personal choice, but they've got to have the opportunity. That gets back to what we were talking about with options, you know, as much as you have options of how to get around a given neighborhood, a, a street grid gives you those. You know, if your only option is one kind of housing, then you don't really have, um, you don't have the opportunity to experience something different. No, and you, do, and you don't meet neighbors who are not like yourself. And African-Americans were deliberately excluded from those areas deliberately excluded from that lifestyle so it's it's hard in some ways to detach the good design principles from its racial history i mean i've been in urban design meetings charrettes design sessions where uh folks from minority neighborhoods have been very suspicious of the kind of design ideas that we've been talking about because that's white folks urbanism, you know, that's exclusive. 
you know, oh, we're not going to be allowed to live there, you know, because that racial injustice lives long and dies hard. And that's a huge challenge. The private sector cannot solve this on its own. It's a citywide problem that needs citywide solutions, and that means public policy. And it's going to be branded as socialism, and it's going to be uh, the fight of the, the fight of the century to do something about this. Uh, I don't know whether we'll win. I'm very realistic. We could fail. Charlotte could actually enjoy its brief boom, and then history will will move on, and we'll just be left the way we are—a sort of mid-sized southern city going nowhere. Because well, I think that's as hopeful uh, a note to leave it on as any. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we don't do something, we're screwed. It's that simple. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time, and um, we are about out of time here. So yeah. I think if we don't do something, we're screwed is a great final note. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time, and let's do this again sometime. I really appreciate being asked, Eli. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Charlotte podcast, produced by me, Eli Portillo, at the UNC Charlotte Urban Institute. Keep looking to the future, Charlotte.